Hi everybody, and welcome to The Dry Life, a podcast where we talk about the ins and outs of the alcohol-free lifestyle, sobriety, and everything in between. My name is Kayla Lyons, and I'm your host. Let's get started. All right, everybody, I'd like to welcome a very special guest on today's episode. Her name is Brett, and you may know her from Instagram or her blog, which is called Bipolar and Sower. Hi, Brett. Hey, Kayla. How's it going? You know, I'm hanging in there. How about you? (laughs) Same here. Glad it's Thursday. We're almost to the weekend. Exactly. So... For those who are listening who may not follow you on Instagram or be familiar with your blog, why don't you go ahead and tell them a little bit about you? Sure. Um, Yeah. So my name is Brett. I am a little over 10 months sober and I decided to make my Instagram account and my blog, Bipolar and Sober, about a month ago. Um, And the reason for that was... Because when I was first getting sober, kind of in early this year, like January and February, especially amidst the pandemic in the beginning, it's really hard. It was really hard to find people in person, you know, like you can't even go to AA meetings if you're going to try that out. And so I really turned to to the Internet and mostly Instagram and found a lot of amazing accounts, um, sober accounts. But over time, I kind of realized like, hey, you know, we have people who are making like amazing mocktails. We have people who are doing meetups. There's not really anybody who I found that was really strongly advocating around mental health. Um, I found a lot of accounts that were kind of the general like self-care and wellness. But mm-hmm. for me, with my diagnosis of bipolar 2, um, this is something that, you know, impacts me every day. It impacts how I handle my sobriety and I really wanted to, to kind of create the space that I, I couldn't find on Instagram myself. So I'm trying to kind of come at, at Instagram from the angle of mental health and, and my di- bipolar 2 diagnosis, but also how do you kind of handle that and how does it mix in with recovery? Awesome. So I don't know if you, oh, I'm sure you do know the answer, but for, for those listening who may not know much about bipolar disorder could you tell them a little bit about bipolar 2 versus bipolar 1 because I think sometimes people don't even know that there is a difference yeah for sure and I think that's that's a really good question um so basically the main difference between bipolar 1 and bipolar 2 is the severity um of the the manic episodes so with bipolar one people can experience like a full manic episode um and then with bipolar two you experience something called hypomanic episodes and so that's kind of just the easiest way to say it is that it's like less severe um so all of your symptoms could be less severe it could last not as long um and so for me personally, um, I am bipolar two. However, bipolar two can also kind of present differently in all different people. So for me, I have really um, only experienced like the very low lows. Mm. And I've kind of had these 
like little blips of kind of hypomanic episodes. Um, but I remember when, when I was finally diagnosed, um, the psychiatrist, you know, we chatted for like hours and all about my past experiences and everything. And he said, he was like, I'm, I'm so sorry. You haven't even experienced like a big, like manic episode, like feeling Mm -hmm. like you're on top of the world. Like you've just really been in these low, low points. So as far as like my experience or what I could speak to, it's, it's really more of those lows. Um, but, but normally it is just a mix of, of hypomania and, and depressive episodes versus full manic episodes, which would be bipolar one. Got it. So do you think that part of your substance abuse disorder kind of stemmed from the mental health issues or was that two separate things going on for you? Yeah. I mean, I think they obviously interacted with each other. I, I think it's, you know, like the chicken before the egg Mm -hmm. kind of question. Um, I'm not sure really what came first. And that's really also because I started drinking around the age of 12. So I have two Mm. older sisters and I think just kind of the influence of them and being in high school, I probably, I got to the drink a little bit quicker Um, so I think they really just played off of each other's like worst traits, you know, alcohol is a depressant. Um, if I already was having tendencies to have depressive episodes, like you're just putting fuel on the fire. Mm -hmm. Um, so I know that that alcohol exacerbated my symptoms to some degree. Um, but also just, alcohol in general, if you drink as much as I did, it's, it's not going to help your mental state at all, whether you're bipolar or not. (laughs) 100%. So why don't you tell me and the audience a little bit about your journey? You know, where, Mm -hmm. where were you a year ago, you know, up until that moment where you decided, all right, enough is enough, you know, and you decided to quit drinking. Yeah. Um, so a year ago, it feels like a lifetime ago when you've made so many changes. Um, but yeah, a, a year ago, so November of last year, I was in like such a terrible headspace, was really, you know, spiraling out of control really quickly. Um, I did have a full-time job and I still have that same full-time job. Um, however, I was very lucky in the fact that I had the flexibility to work from home and could just drink as much as I want and be hungover and do my work from my bed and like, you know, get sick and be doing drugs to try to wake myself up. Like it was just a total kind of around the clock, um, using and kind of the, the catalyst to my getting sober was that my sister was hosting a Thanksgiving in Pittsburgh. And so all of my family is kind of from the East coast and I moved out to San Francisco where I am now about four years ago. And I was debating if I should, (laughs) should go to this Thanksgiving. And really it was like, you know, I'm obviously not in a good place, but after drinking a ton to help me think about that decision, I decided I'm not in that bad of shape. Like I'll go, whatever. <laughs> like, I'll do great. And I went and basically long story short, 
I scared, I scared the shit out of my sisters. And I think also my parents, but um, they, they kind of have a longer process and, and kind of accepting kind of where I was and where I am now. But, Mm -hmm. but my sisters were really scared and really pushed um, my parents probably like that whole month to after Thanksgiving to get me help to, you know, just do something. They didn't, I don't even think they really knew what to do. It was just like, Brett is clearly dying and we need, we can't let this happen. And yeah, I've just heard these stories kind of from them, but, but that's kind of the story that I've heard. And um, so it was an accumulation of, of all of their conversations that they were having along with the fact that I have a terrible, terrible habit of getting super drunk and then texting really awful things to people that I love. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think really it was, it was kind of my like roundabout messed up way of asking for help when I didn't really know how to. Yeah. Um, and I also have, um, self-harm tendencies when, when I'm really drunk. So, Long story short, I ended up having, I ended up hospitalized for self-harm and I got a ton of stitches. I proceeded to take a picture of those stitches and send it to my family and was like, you don't care about me. Like, you don't love me. Like I can do these things and you don't, you don't do anything, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I woke up the next morning Um, And I also wrote about this on my blog, but I woke up the next morning, basically, you're getting on a flight, you're coming home, like, this is not, this is not happening, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. Whereas in the past, you know, kind of be like, whoa, Brett, that was kind of crazy. Like, are you okay now? Yeah, yeah. And and then I landed um, in, in Boston, like 24 hours later, and uh, had a rehab like lined up for me. And basically my parents were like, we can't make you go, but we, we would really like you to. And I think I just, I scared myself enough with, with my self harm and everything. Mm -hmm. And then I also finally had like somebody answering my really backwards call for help, if that makes sense. So it's kind of the, the accumulation of, of those things which got me to January. And then I went to rehab for two weeks. Um, I would have stayed longer, but insurance only covers two weeks. Mm-hmm. That place was was really life-changing and really incredible. Um, and I don't, I, th- I don't think if I, if I didn't go there, I don't know if I would have been able to stay sober. Like those two weeks of just, you're in this place and it's a safe place. There's no alcohol, there's no stressors. Like it's just... A, a beautiful environment to be in um and that really just set set me up from there and I I stayed home for like another month after rehab I came back I started working and now I have 10 months under my belt I mean it's really kind of all the drama happened before and now my life has been you know pretty pretty simple I mean I've had tough days but you know emotions and cravings don't last forever sure. Um, yeah, so very long winded answer, but that's my past year. That's a lot. (laughs) 
Um, yeah, it is a lot. I feel for you though. Um, I I went to treatment also, but this was back in like 2015. It was like a year mm-hmm. before I actually decided to get sober. Um, but I I think it really what you said speaks to the mindset of the person because you have to really want to be better, right? In order to yeah. like actually get something out of the experience of going to treatment. And I think you are a perfect example of somebody who was aware, okay, shit, you know, this is real. I really need help. And mm-hmm. you went and you took from the experience and you left and, you know, it was a the catalyst and the foundation for what you've built now where I find a lot of people don't take treatment seriously, including myself. I kind of thought of it as mm-hmm. a punishment for behavior because for me, yep. I was similar. I was doing a lot of self-harming. A lot of it was surface and, you know, for attention um, and things mm-hmm. like that. But I did something similar. I sent a picture to my ex-boyfriend of me self-harming and the police showed up at my door and next thing I know I'm 51 yeah. um yeah and, there, and I'm like yeah. oh hello I'm here um but then even after <laughs> that you know I I I was for me I actually got court court appointed to rehab because I had assaulted my my ex or my boyfriend at the time I'd assaulted him um and mm. so for me, you know, it was either jail for like three months or treatment. And, you know, of course I'm like, okay, 30 days and like a, you know, Malibu rehab, fine. I can do that. (laughs) Yeah. And I think I wish that I had had your experience and really taken more from it because even though it planted the seed, I think that, and that's what was important at the time. Like it, it did introduce me to AA, which was really the foundation of, my early sobriety and it um introduced me to how to ask for help in the right places Mm -hmm. um but for me personally I really still didn't think I had like a problem problem I thought I was more you know oh well I'm I have codependency issues and you know I like to party but I'm just you know a regular college kid like I'm not really doing anything that everybody else is doing so when I left, mm-hmm. I really, I had a contract, you know, that I was supposed to be doing all these things and I just didn't take it seriously. And so I personally went out kind of in and out for about a year before I finally stopped mm-hmm. just because, you know, when you're not ready, you're not ready. And I think that's, it, that's what's so hard about addiction and specifically yeah. substance abuse is like, you know, we want so bad for like ourselves and for other people, I think around us to get better, but we know better than anybody else. Like you have to be ready, like to fully surrender. And it is so hard and it, it really like everybody's rock bottom is different. So when people think, Oh, you know, this, will this is it. Or when I think, you know, to myself, well, like you said, Oh, wow, that was really bad. You know, this must be it it's like maybe not maybe maybe but you can't I think you can't just rely on oh I'm gonna hit my rock bottom and you know I'm gonna get better it's like you can always get worse and you can always stop before then too it's just a matter of finding out like 
okay, how do you want to live? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think, yeah, I, I think in some strange way, it's also like my mind when I was drinking was like, let's push this. Like, let's see how far mm-hmm. we can go. And with that comes, as you were saying, like the bottom, it's like, is this really the bottom? Does this dig down a little bit more? Well, let's find out. And like, that's how my mind worked on drugs. It was like, let's just keep digging lower and lower because like, I will crush through these rocks I see and I will find more rocks below. And, you know, you can, you can play that game with yourself for a while. Um, But yeah, agreed. It just, it, when it clicks, it clicks. And I had plenty of opportunities for it to kind of click a few years ago. And, you know, for whatever reasons, like I just wasn't ready. It wasn't the right time. Um, it could be, you know, a million different reasons, but, but really grateful that, that it happened, you know, at all. Yes. So did you, before, I mean, I obviously you started drinking early, so it would probably be hard to tell because, you know, bipolar usually starts to show up a little bit later than 12. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, do you think that the substance abuse may have played a factor in kind of the eugenics of turning something on that may not have been there had you not drank so early or I mean that in this is such a broad question I think and this is all depending on what people believe you know addiction is but I'm curious as to what any of you is when it comes to that yeah I think it's a, a really interesting question um for me to some degree, I think, I think like genetics has to do with it. I come from a family that I come from a family that one side is like pretty heavy drinkers. Um, and there have been like known alcoholics, um, a few people who have died from their alcoholism, Mm. um, you know, just kind of like the random uncle mage, whatever, but it still runs in our family. And, Actually, I have two sisters, and one of them has been sober um, through AA for over seven years now. Awesome. Um, yeah. yeah. So that was, you know, an interesting process with her seeing me go through it. But, um, but yeah, so I think it, it kind of runs in the family. Um, and then I think, I, to a degree, I think this was inevitable, but the way the environment that I grew up in definitely like kickstarted it and I think allowed me to some degree to hit my bottom at 27 instead of at you know 41 um I also think that my drug use allowed me to hit my bottom faster um as far as how like bipolar fits in anxiety and kind of depression also also run in the family so great genes I am working with and um I had I've kind of always been in therapy you know we had some family stuff happen um when I was younger and so we kind of all went into therapy and then I just really took to it so I always stayed in it and uh you know I would have like kind of low points and so we thought maybe I you know had depression 
you know, tried some meds, oh, they didn't work. And the whole taking meds process is just really, you know, painful and you have to really be committed to it. And I just wasn't there either. And so I think, like, I don't really know when, I don't know when, like, the bipolar aspect really kicked in. Um, I would think as far as like the manic, hypomanic, like small episodes that I've had, that's been within the past like three or four years. Um, But I've always kind of presented, I guess, as depressed. Um, Like I would describe kind of my general, you know, state of mind. And this is before I was on medication, which I'm on now. But like I would wake up at like a two or three out of a scale of one to 10 and I could like dip down to a negative five pretty easily but like you couldn't really like a really good day was a four and so yeah kind of just a lot of things going on drug use didn't help at all and when I say drug use I'm including Mm -hmm. alcohol in that um so really like just muddied the waters like a lot um and so that's another reason why I'm just really happy that I'm sober now it's like okay like let's really like how does Brett Mm -hmm. function like sober you know what is my kind of normal state um and that allows you to you know gather a lot like a lot of accurate data points to really you know figure out what is going on with me and like how can we most effectively move forward well, it sounds like you've had to deal with a lot and that can really shape a person. I think people don't give enough credit to all of the different pieces of the puzzle. And it's so easy to just say, to blame one thing, you know, to blame one trauma or to blame genetics or to blame, you know, your situation, socioeconomic. But I think at the end of the day Mm -hmm. and one big thing that we, you know, the foundation of the dry club, the program is built on the diathesis stress model, which basically states that substance abuse and addiction happen when you have a person who a is already predisposed and that, you know, has genetic markers for addiction, for impulsive behavior, things like that. And then you put that and you put that person in either, you know, a very unhealthy circumstance, trauma, abuse, and you know, like trauma is such an umbrella term. Trauma can be a car accident. It can be, you know, emotional or physical assault or abuse. Like there it's, and and everybody's different, right? Because one person's trauma, one person might be able to come out of it very quickly and get over it and move on. And another person, it really might burden them. So it's mm-hmm. this whole thing of, you know, comparing traumas is, is so not a thing, <laughs> but yeah. you know, I think we have to understand that it's not, it's never just one thing, right? Like we can't sit here and blame ourselves and think, Oh, well, if I didn't do this or if I wasn't born into this, like things would be different, but mm-hmm. it's, it's this huge, you know, combination of X, Y, Z that brings us, you know, kind of to our knees. And I'm like you, I, come from a family of uh, not my, you know, my actual parents, but other close Mm -hmm. family members um, 
who are, some are sober, some are not. Um, but alcoholism does run in my family. So I do have to be careful. Um, and I, you know, I, I never really thought about it before, but when I got older and I started learning more about addiction and for a while I did AA. And so, you know, I learned about the disease model and things like that. But for me personally, yeah, as someone who studies, you know, science, I, I couldn't relate to that. And so I needed to know more. And so I did a lot of reading and a lot of research to kind of understand better, you know, like, why am I like this? You know, why am I hurting myself? Mm-hmm. Why am I hurting people I love? Why am I ruining my opportunity and basically my life? Um, but it comes, I think it just comes down to, you know, figuring out what the problem, what the root causes are. And then like you said, healing. And I think therapy is a huge part of healing. And for people like you, people like me who have like specific diagnoses and I have, um, post-traumatic stress disorder as well as, um, OCD Mm -hmm. and panic disorder. So I have a little, like nice little fun combination. Um, but I am all about taking meds you know, take your fucking meds. <laughs> if you're, if you're prescribed them. Totally. Um, and like you said, taking them on time, don't skip them. Don't think, Oh, I'm feeling better. I need to get off them now. Like the reason you're feeling better is because you've yeah. been taking them. <laughs> yeah. So it's they're working. It's, it's this whole process. Right. And people yeah. who have mental health issues really, really do need to understand. And I think, acceptance is hard, but I really don't think moderation or even mindful drinking is possible for people who have mental illness because it really just affects us so differently chemically, you know, Mm -hmm. to where somebody who doesn't have mental health issues, they might be able to have that one or two glasses of wine a month, you know, or a glass of champagne out with people. But when you have a mental health disorder, even if you're not binge drinking, even if you're not drinking every day, you know, alcohol consumption can really mess up your meds. It can make them, you know, less useful. It can hurt your brain chemistry. It can cause depressive episodes, manic episodes, you know, panic attacks. Mm -hmm. And so it's really just not worth it at the end of the day. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And I think, you know, going back to your earlier point, like there is no one thing that I can point to of like, you know, this is when it happened or this is the thing. And if that didn't happen, you know, I wouldn't be here. I think our, our lives. And when I say our lives, I am referring to mine, but was just kind of like this beautiful, perfect storm. And like, and I say beautiful kind of ironically and sarcastically and, And I think it's the same thing with recovery. It's like, you know, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. I'm not going to go to one thing. I'm going to go to all the things and take what I like from them and leave the rest. And like, as you do that, and as you figure that out, like alcohol has become so much less appealing to me over these past 10 months. Um, It's as you were saying, like, it's just not worth it. Like, all I have to do, and it's not easy, but all I have to do is not fucking drink 
and I can have anything else that I put my mind to literally anything. And that anything could be sitting on the couch all day, eating ice cream and watching Disney movies. Like that's fine, but I can do that and stay awake for that long because I'm not fucked up because I'm, I don't have anxiety because I'm not apologizing about some shit I did that I don't even remember. Like, you know, I can get out of my bed now and go to the bathroom whenever Mm -hmm. I want to, because I'm not in such a depressive episode from my bipolar, along with being so hungover from drinking a depressing substance, like that I can't get out of bed. Like I'm just, I'm a, I'm taking care of myself to allow myself like the many, many doors of possibility and, and it's up to me whether I want to open them or not. Whereas before in drinking, it's just like I am putting locks and chains on every single fucking door and not getting anywhere. So what does a, you know, depressive state look like now compared to a depressive state when you were drinking? Yeah. Um, Before, so when I was drinking, um, that would look like, I mean, waking up in the morning, I think the only kind of way I would get out of bed and even leave my room, because I I have a bathroom attached to my bedroom, so I don't even have to leave my room to go to the bathroom in my apartment, Um, and I would only really leave my room to, you know, like, go to the fridge and, like, grab a bunch of drinks, and I would, like, stock up for the day and then come back into my room, and mind you, this could be a Sunday, this could be a Wednesday, it doesn't matter, Um, so I would kind of, like, call out sick from work and just, like, lie in my bed and kind of drink and cry. And at some point I would have, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 drinks in me. Um, and then you kind of go one or one of two ways you pass out. Cause I'm just so drunk and sad, which is kind of the lucky route. And then you mm-hmm. have the self-harm route, um, which, you know, I don't need to get into that, but that's not a, you know, pretty sight either. And then at some point, I would either, you know, go to the hospital or um, things would be superficial enough that I could just stay at home. Um, That kind of cycle would go on for like days at a time. I think the longest one that I could kind of like pull off because I mean, I have I have rent to pay. I have a job like I need to do those things. And and I could always push myself enough to to be able to get out of it enough to kind of function a little bit I also used a lot of cocaine um so that was kind of my other way of self-medicating when I really felt that Mm. I needed to get out of my low um was to just do a bunch of blow um and so that that's kind of how it looked um back back then and now um I've been through two depressive episodes since I got sober um both of them have lasted like two to four days. So sort of pretty manageable on that end as far as, you know, work and, and all of those things. And 
it's just like a lot of crying I just I wake up crying and I don't know why I'm crying and I can't stop crying um yeah I I highly recommend if um if people haven't seen it there's an episode of modern love um with Anne Hathaway and she plays a woman with uh bipolar and I I had my first depressive episode when I was back home this summer I went home for a few months because of COVID Mm -hmm. you can kind of work from anywhere and I started going through my low and you know my mom was just like you know how can I help or you know what can I do and she watched that episode and afterwards just like the way that she kind of like approached me or like the way she held herself around me it was just like something clicked for her and she kind of like got it a little bit more and like that was really refreshing because it's just like I don't have control over me crying when I'm when I'm in my depressive state um and it's just kind of like you just gotta go with the flow like you have to ride it out and luckily for me um I guess up to this point neither of my episodes have have kind of swung over to the suicidal depression it's really just been like very lethargic and and crying a lot um and so I just try to stay like really patient with myself and just communicate with everyone around me like with my boyfriend and my family and my roommates and my friends like hey this is happening um like I'm okay but I just want you to know that's why I'm not responding or that's why I'm not yeah. you know, on Instagram all the time. And, and you just kind of ride it out. And I think, you know, with that kind of level of acceptance, I've, I've been able to manage it pretty so, well. Yeah, so yeah, that's far. one thing I was going to ask for some, you know, kind of what's your toolkit, you know, like as somebody who is a dual diagnosis, um, you know, you have to manage mm-hmm your recovery and also manage, you know, your mental health. So what are some of the things that you kind of do daily that help keep you like, A, I guess, you know, prevention, um, but also, you know, um, Mm -hmm. self-care, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I, I used to kind of have a really good schedule or, or not schedule, but routine with, with self-care. And I think that's something to be honest, I've kind of been more lackadaisical about um, the past few months and I think I can feel it like, and so I guess that's, that's just one point Mm -hmm. of stick to your plan. It's there for a reason. Um, But I mean, take care of the basics. Like I think, it's kind of, you know, thinking about like the, um, hierarchy of needs, like I need food, I need sleep. Um, I need like fresh air exercise, uh, kind of those very basic things because for a long time when I was using, like, I didn't even do that. And it's like, if you don't have the foundation, nothing is going to sit well upon it. So I still take that approach um, in kind of that foundational approach. Of course, I have my meds now. Um, I have a lot, not a lot of meds, but like a good amount. And so opening the each pill um, 
each pill jar every morning is kind of annoying. So I mm-hmm. bought like a really cute pill box. And so that sits on the sink. And so it's like, oh, this is like this cute thing. And so just doing like those little things for yourself. Um, that's been really helpful for me. Um, I also just make sure that I like with my work day, I set five minutes between each of my meetings, just so I can like, kind of take a breather, you know, go get my 12th, like Waterloo sparkling water or LaCroix or whatever. um, And just have like those, those moments to myself. Um, And then for me, I also am a huge podcast fan. So I um, kind of religiously listen to Recovery Happy Hour as well as Recovery Elevator. Um, and then social media. So for me, I think social media, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, I think you have to be very cognizant of your use of it, but to have, you know, like my tie to a lot of the sober community be on Instagram, I do spend a good amount of time on there. Um, and I just try to make sure and check in with myself, like, you know, is this, purposeful like am I you know having a good conversation or am I just kind of mindlessly scrolling and and when I catch myself mindlessly scrolling you know that's when when you got to get off and and do something else but I think those are kind of the main things that I do but again I think it's really like do the foundational stuff do the basics and once you kind of can get the basics down then start building up like your self-care kit but if I didn't like make my bed every day and shower and all that, like there would be no hope for those. Well, those I think that's great advice. Moments. So I, I know you do a little bit of everything and I'm, I'm curious because I've talked to a couple of people about this before and everybody mm-hmm. is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you manage doing like AA and also like online recovery um, and then also, you know, therapy and stuff. Cause I find sometimes all, all three of them can be a little bit conflicting in maybe their messages, their values, things they tell you to do. So I know, you know, I, I used to do AA. I know the rules. I know the rules of this program. I created them, you know, and then I also go to therapy too. So sometimes there's a lot going on and there's, you know, a, a bunch of different people telling you what, what you should be doing, what, you know, what's right for you. So how do you kind of navigate, you know, mm-hmm. what you take and what you leave? Yeah. Yeah. I think especially this day and age, it's just like, there's so many paths. It is, it is really overwhelming. Um, And for me in the beginning, and I think also just kind of my mindset, like if I do something, like I'm an alcoholic, like Mm -hmm. if I'm going to do something, I'm going to go balls to the wall. Like, I'm not just going to, you know, kind of recover, like I'm going to fucking do the the damn thing. So, you know, originally I was like, I'll do AA and refuge recovery and I'll get back into my DBT therapy group and I'll do this. And so, you know, first I had the process of you are setting yourself up for failure if you, yeah. you know, approach it this way. So I kind of just went to a few 
different types of meetings like smart recovery, AA, refuge, and just like saw what worked for me. So AA just like happened to click. Um, and, and for a long time, I was really worried about that, to be honest. Um, I know like the grief that people have about the program, um, like all about the patriarchy. It isn't for women. Um, you know, the fact that if you slip up, you have to start over. I know that was an experience that you had that really prompted, Mm -hmm. you know, this new program that you have. And yeah, like, I think, I think there are (laughs) things about AA that suck and I don't agree with everything. Um, And so, yeah, I've just taken the approach of like, take what's good and leave the rest. And I think for me, like at this point in time, and I'm currently working on my fourth step with my sponsor. um, But at this point in time, like there's not enough things that rub me the wrong way. And I've connected with a lot of like beautiful, powerful, strong women in AA, I think finding like the right sponsor makes a big difference. Um, One that was like pretty flexible with Mm -hmm. me and doesn't have a really rigid program. Um, It took me, it took me a little bit to find her, you know, I had a sponsor Mm -hmm. before and that kind of didn't go so well. So I think, you know, with anything, it's like have patience, you know, it's like, it's, it's very rare that the first thing you try works. Um, but you just got to keep trying. So with kind of like recovery program AA, that's how I'm managing it for now. It's working for now. Is it going to work two months from now? I have no idea, but, but it is today. Um, as far as like therapy and then like online Instagram community, uh, I think like therapy just works really well for me. And Um, I focus on like Mm -hmm. kind of the DBT, CBT side of things. So um, really what that's about is like changing your behaviors and actions, which kind of working itself backwards will potentially change your feelings and emotions. And also DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, which is like coming to terms with like different ways that you can approach the fact that you can have two opposing views at the same time. So like the fact that I know the meeting that I have in an hour and a half, like, I don't really want to go to that tonight, but I know it'll be, I know I'll feel better afterwards. And so like, how do I kind of deal with that? And, and how do I make the best decision moving forward? So I think because my therapy has a lot of structure Um, that's very helpful versus talk therapy, which I think just wasn't very effective for me. So again, also with therapy, I had to try a few things to make it work. And then finally, um, kind of like, I'll just kind of plug like all of media together. So that could be my podcast, my Instagram, um, the books that I read on recovery. Um, I think I really just approach all of it with like a very opened mindset. Um, and I also try to give like everyone the benefit of the doubt. I think the only thing that I really have trouble with is when like on social media or anywhere is when people specifically like put down, um, a certain type of program, especially to people who have not tried that program yet. Um, cause it maybe that like, it didn't work for you, but that could be the thing that clicks. Like 
I would shit talk AA all the time um, before mm-hmm. I got sober, like those Bible thumping crazy people. And, you know, I'm kind of one of them. So um, I think if you just approach it with an open mind, like right now, kind of me taking what I, what I need from a lot of these different areas is really helpful. Um, I can also see how it could be overwhelming for some people. So I also, I guess, just want to plug that, like, if there's just one thing that you're doing and it's working and you're feeling good, like, you don't have to do more. Like, you can ride, you can ride that out. So just because you have a ton of options, like, you don't have to overflow your plate, um, especially. Yeah, and I think people forget, you know, the whole point of getting sober is because we want to evolve, right? Like, I didn't want to be where I was anymore. Mm -hmm. I knew that I was capable of living a different lifestyle, but I knew that I had to change things. And so whatever you're doing right now, you know, to stay alcohol free, to stay sober or to stay clean, like what you said, if it's working right now, then keep doing it. There's nothing wrong with exploring other options, I think. But at the same time, I think the most important thing to remember is don't close your mind to anything. And for me, at least my experience with AA and I have, it's very polarized because I will recommend AA to newcomers all the time. Mm -hmm. But when somebody asks me personally, for me, you know, I was there for a year and a half It really was a great foundation. I think, like you said, you know, you don't want to go to the meeting, but you know you're going to feel better. And that's exactly what it was for me. It was a place to meet other young people because I got sober at 23. And so there's really not a lot of people, you know, um, at 23 um, who don't want to drink. (laughs) Um, And when I had gone to treatment in L.A., which is where I was living, um, you know, I still knew people. Who were still there. So I had already had kind of some friends, you know, and it was a great way to have a support system and to have people to call when I was feeling like I needed a drink or when I was feeling, you know, any sort of way, because I was also dating an addict who was kind of in and out of treatment and um, not doing very well himself. So I was kind of doing both my own recovery and Al-Anon at the same time. Um, And I really needed people around me that understood what I was going through because a great example is I I had a roommate in LA and she was great and she was nice, but we didn't really have a lot in common. And a big part of that was my, you know, history of drug and alcohol abuse and a lot of the extremes that I had in my life and how it was very normal for me, you know, back then to, to be dating somebody who worked for the cartel or to be, you know, stealing or to be just in in very bad situations with very not Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't see some of them are bad people so definitely um but you know and even into my early (laughs) early sobriety probably a year and a half before I finally broke up with with that boyfriend um I was still stealing credit cards with him and doing like really reckless stuff and enabling him and I think that for me part of why I left AA is because I, I personally found that the whole idea of like, you know, if another person asks for your help, you're obligated. 
I, I like that in some sense, but for me, I was using that as a validation to stay with this person who was very, very sick. Um, because I, in my mind, I couldn't let it go. And I was, every yeah. time I would try and leave, it just kind of sat in my mind, like, well, you know, you're abandoning this person who needs your help. And, you know, so I stuck around, I think a lot longer mm-hmm. than I, that I might have had that not been my mindset at the time. Um, you know, truly believing this person has a disease and that he's sick and that he, it's not his choice. But, you know, for me, it, it ended when he uh, assaulted me and, um, and he had never done that before. And it mm. just got into like a stalker mode and it was completely out of control. And I kind of just sat there and thought, you know, uh, how am I supposed to forgive this right now? You know, how am I supposed to live like this? How am I supposed to stay sober? dealing with this um and like you said finding the right sponsor was super important because after I worked my steps I started you know going back to therapy I was doing other things but I found a really great sponsor who I think she had 11 years sober she was only like 10 years older than me um she had a lot of things that I wanted you know and when I told her I was thinking about leaving, she was very nonchalant about it. You know, she was like, you know, I did the same thing. I left, I did agape, I did, you know, smart recovery. I did all this different stuff. And then I ended up coming back because this is what worked the best. And I, I thought that that was really cool because I was afraid to tell her, you know, in the beginning. And then I ended up going to an AA meeting. I think that night, like a, like a young people's meeting, um, And this guy spoke and he was probably like Mm -hmm. my age, you know, and he was just so honest and I appreciated it because he just stood up there and was like, you know, I'm speaking tonight because somebody asked me and because I still feel, you know, service is important, but I'm honest and I don't really do AA anymore. You know, I got sober here, but it led me to Buddhism and I came in an atheist and now I'm a Buddhist, you know, and that's, and that's where my recovery is now. And I left the meeting and I was like, oh, fuck, I can leave. (laughs) Like, I didn't know I could leave um, because I was scared, you know. Um, And that's for me, that's the part I'm not a big fan of the whole jails, institutions and death, because Mm -hmm. like you said, we're in a new era where there are other programs. Mm -hmm. So it's like as long as you're not leaving and going back on the fucking street or going to the bar, like try something else, you know, and that's where I think I agree with you, like there's nothing like every program works for a different person. I don't believe in it works if you work it because there are plenty of people who work it and it still doesn't work for them. But it's like you said, you're going to find something out there that does work for you. It might be smart recovery. It might be AA. It might be dry club. It might be CBT, Mm -hmm. DBT therapy. But I tell people all the time, like do them all, (laughs) you know, like try everything. Don't just, you know, walk into one thing and go, all right, like this is it and suffer through it or, you know, half ass it because you might not drink, but you're not going to recover. And I know so many people who have a lot of time, you know, sober time, but they're not really recovered, you know, and that's the difference. Mm -hmm. And I I don't think a lot of people like to acknowledge that, you know, that sober time doesn't equal recovery time. You know, you have to really put in the work and how a lot of people do that is like you said, I, always strongly 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 recommend cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy 
to people with substance abuse issues, because I think for so many of us, Mm -hmm. the way that we think is wrong, you know, and the way that we behave and the actions we take are wrong and not Mm -hmm. wrong isn't bad, but just, you know, for whatever reasons, like whether we're, we were surviving, you know, a certain way, or maybe we were taught the wrong way to act, or maybe we just were neglected and we weren't taught anything at all, you know, but it's kind of like this quote that really stuck out to me. And it said, you know, the way that you survived is not the way you have to live now, you know, and that's with drinking too. Like we drank because it did something for us. You know, if it didn't do anything, we wouldn't have done it. But the way you survived is not the way you want to live for the rest of your life. That's not living. It's surviving, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think also there's some other quote kind of similar to that. And it's just like the steps and the actions that you took, like to get you to this point, like got you to this shitty point. Let's just say that's your rock bottom. And it's like, so obviously things are going to have to change. Like you're going to have to approach this differently if you want to end up in a different place. And that's a lot of work. Like I got sober so I got sober at 27. That means I have 27 years of shitty, well, not all shitty, like I've done some good things, but like when it comes to drinking, it's like shitty habits, like negative thoughts, you know, like delusional thinking. And I'm not going to undo that in 10 months. I'm not going to undo that in five years. Like this is a constant like work. It's constant work that I have to do, but it's worth it. And like, there is no, there's no end point. It's not like, oh yeah. Like when, you know, this yeah, thing happens, like, <laughs> okay, like I'm done now. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, you, you gotta keep doing it. And I think, yeah, to just invest enough time, invest enough time in your recovery and sobriety, like similar to the amount of time you invested in getting really fucked up and making bad decisions. Like I don't spend nearly as much time on my recovery. I probably spend like a half, half or a third of the amount of time um, on recovery as I spent on using and being hungover and going to buy blow and like all of those collective activities. And like, I'm pretty good with where my life is at. So yeah, I mean, just keep, keep going with it, figure out the thing that works for you. And it's not going to be nearly as draining as being hungover and miserable totally. and having zero I think dollars in your bank account was. People have before. an idea that like, oh, if I just stop yeah. drinking, like everything is going to get better and just poof, my problems will go away. And it's like, dude, for sure. No, uh, things are definitely going to get worse first because you're going to have to face all that shit. You know, and this is where I think people need to step outside the victim mentality. Mm -hmm. And for me, it took me a year and a half of being sober to actually step outside of the victim mentality. Because for me, it was, I personally used the idea of the disease model to like validate my behavior. You know, it was like, well, that wasn't really me. You know, I didn't make those decisions. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I didn't punch those people or (laughs) I didn't, you know, X, Y, Z. And then I, I had a really yeah. deep, dark conversation with, with somebody I was dating at the time whose dad was an alcoholic and he kind of got into this like debate 
but it basically I had this epiphany in this moment um and I was like oh shit like I have to take responsibility if I want to move forward because I was really at this point you know I just left AA I was in therapy but I knew that I needed something else like I was ready I was evolving but I didn't know what it was and part of that for me the process was like taking accountability and realizing like you know what, maybe I was a bad person. And I don't think that that's everybody's case. But for me, truly, I was very selfish. I was, you know, like totally in my own world. And even though I think a lot of the time, my, uh, you know, I wasn't purposely trying to hurt people. When I did, I wasn't remorseful. So it was very self-centered as I think a lot of addicts are and so when I owned that and I kind of sat with myself and I was like you know what like I have to own this shit you know like I have to not make excuses and not try and validate my old behavior the only thing I can do tomorrow is do something differently and even now you know I'm four and a half years sober and I like you said the work never ends like maybe I'm not dealing with my alcohol abuse anymore because I don't drink, you know, and it's been a long time. But, you know, for me, alcohol abuse was a symptom of other things that I had going on, trauma, you know, OCD, things like that. So yeah, when my serious anger issues come out, when my anxiety comes out, like I still have to check myself and play the tape forward and do all of the things that I learned how to do, you know, in recovery and and apply those to other things because, you know, to me, if you're somebody who drinks to escape or drinks to numb your feeling, you know, and, and you're maladaptive and it's really, you know, hurting your life more than it's helping, you have to wonder why you're doing it, right? Like nobody, that whole idea of like, well, you know, my life's yeah. great and I really just feel like going and like shooting some heroin. Like no, nobody that there's like no scenario in which that that happens. So this idea, I think of people mm-hmm. just want, like you said, this instant gratification, like, well, I'm better now. It's like, no, dude, like if you've used for 10 years, you got 10 years of work to do. Like maybe it won't take a whole 10 years, but like you, that's how much, like that's how much, you know, emotional intelligence you lost. That's how much, you know, like, maturity you've stunted there's how much gray matter that you've killed how many neurotransmitters you've killed like you know the whole and that's what for me I think it's so interesting and why I love the education that we can give people on like a thousand hours dry and now on the reframe app it's like really telling people like Mm -hmm. it's not just about how shitty you feel in the morning like you are killing your brain you know, you are killing your organs, you're poisoning yourself. Like it is so beyond this idea of like, well, I'm hungover, I can eat, you know, like a really shitty breakfast meal and take some Pedialyte, you know, and I'm gonna be better in like a little bit. It's like, (laughs) you are chipping away at your body and at your brain every time you drink, every time you use, you know, and people, you know, yeah, maybe some yeah. of us are young, but you're going to you're going to fucking pay for that later. You know, I'm almost 30 and I'm already feeling certain things for me. Like I was a big like 
I used benzos. Like I really loved benzos. Um, and so I, I already have mm-hmm. short-term memory yeah. loss, you know, like I already have symptoms of my drug use. So it's like, God, God forbid I used for longer than I did. Um, yeah, we just have, it's, it's frightening really. Oh, totally. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, even for me, like, just, like, the the feeling of getting, like, my brain back was wild. Like, I, just, like, my attention span, like, my level of energy, like, my ability to, like, remember or pay attention to what people are saying and, like, reiterate it back to them. Like, all of that within I would say my first two or three months of sobriety was like my brain was just struggling and kind of all fucked up and was like wait where are all my drugs and but once it kind of like starts kicking back into normal and I know it can take like years and maybe it won't it won't ever go back to how it was before especially with someone like me who started drinking alcohol and doing cocaine so early in my life but just this process over the past 10 months like my brain the past few months is just it's different and like you can feel it like I can I can feel it and that to me it just hits me on a different level like yeah emotionally I'm I'm this way and you know my wallet is a little bit bigger because I'm not like blowing a ton of money on things but but to feel like my brain is like working better is insane and I think for me like understanding physically how harmful like alcohol and drugs are um to your actual like physical body is just like a whole nother level of fuck no I I mean that's the cool thing about neuroplasticity right like you can reverse the effects and I think yeah before I mean 15 years ago people didn't think that you could change your brain or that you could, you know, grow gray matter back. And they're finding that that's not true. Mm -hmm. So the idea, you know, similar to smoking cigarettes, like the sooner you stop, the sooner you can start regenerating brain cells and you can start regenerating gray matter, which is what helps you like your memory, your attitude, your like just your cognition. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not this hopeless thing. Mm-hmm. I think people like no matter how far you've fallen or how low you are, like you can come back up. Yeah. You can make a comeback and your brain can make a comeback. Your body can make a comeback, you know, like, sure. For maybe sure. it's not going to be a hundred percent where you want it to be, but the quicker you stop and the quicker you stop putting that kind of stuff in your body, the quicker you can start healing and, I think people forget too. It's like your brain is attached to your body. All of your organs are attached to your heart, everything. So this, this whole concept of like, oh, what I eat doesn't affect how I think or what I, when I drink, it doesn't affect my brain or my heart. It's like, dude, everything affects everything. So if you have any problems, drinking is going to make them worse. Yeah. And I talked about that with, um, Dr. Meshi, uh, one of my friend's dads, who's a doctor here in Laguna Beach, who has recently been studying, you know, the effects mm-hmm. of alcohol on the endocrine system. 
And it was just amazing to hear how it's like alcohol consumption, really, it affects your hormone levels, it affects your, you know, it goes through the the blood brain barrier, and it can affect your, your, you know, cognition over time. I mean, is it Korskoff's disease that literally causes you to have like, uh, like, long term memory loss? I think it's like similar to dementia. Um, But yeah, it, there's just so many things and people think, oh, yeah, oh that's like too extreme. You know, I don't drink yeah. that much, but it's like, okay, well, you wonder why like you have bad skin or you wonder why your hair is falling out or why your nails are so thin, you know, or you have stomach issues. It's like maybe alcohol isn't causing them, but it's for sure making it worse. Mm-hmm. And I I feel like when you, when you go and you talk to a doctor about it and they say, oh, I want to work on X, Y, Z. Taking alcohol out of the equation should always be part of the prescription. Yeah. Yeah, but it never is. And, like, that's what I think is so dangerous, like, about, like, alcohol is by far, like, the most dangerous drug. Um, And I just finished reading This Naked Mind, um, which was really wild by Annie Grace and there's tons of stats in it but it's just like when we like every celebration there's alcohol like every date that you go on there's alcohol like alcohol is everywhere it is so it is so normalized it is like a like coming coming of age experience to have like you see your parents drinking and even though they feel really shitty the next day, sometimes they still drink it the next time. And it's like, ooh, this must be like this really powerful, like cool thing. And you get so excited about it. And that's, I think that's why it's so dangerous. It's because we just do it so casually all the time. And then over time, like things, I mean, things get worse for some people faster than others. Like for me, for example, but like, yeah, I just wrote a, I just wrote a blog post Mm -hmm. that was like all about the things that I thought were me, but were really alcohol. And like, I was convinced that I had IBS Mm -hmm. that the idiot doctors could just like not diagnose for whatever reason. And like, I stopped drinking and my stomach's normal. I thought that I could never grow out my own nails because they were so brittle and disgusting. So I would always have acrylics and now my nails are like so beautiful and long and natural. Like, these are they're all these things but you just and I think you know part of it is is because it's this drug and it's like convincing you that it's a good thing and society is convincing you that it's a a good thing and a celebratory thing but just like it's it sneakily like convinces you that it has to be anything else like it just it never even crossed my mind that like it could be all of the beer and wine and liquor and of course cocaine never. that was making my stomach all fucked up. Like, well, no I think way. Esther, sober Esther like, just posted about that yesterday and that whole idea of like, it's, it's not extreme to cut all your carbs and all your fat and exercise every day and do all these other extreme things. It, you know, that's mm-hmm. fine. But like, that is just crossing the line like you've gone too far and it's like but but why is that you know nobody yeah nobody stops to think about like why they're so attached Mm -hmm. to drinking and I mean we were there so it's for me it's like dude I'm not judging you like 
uh, there's a reason I don't drink, you know what I mean? Like, hello. Um, oh, but I mean, that's what I think yeah. people like here, like <laughs> us are here for, which is really rad. It's cool that we have podcasts, that we have online community, that we have in-person community, you know, because especially in the middle of a pandemic, you know, mental health is so bad right now for people. And also just with the American Cancer Society coming up and saying, you know, we don't recommend any alcohol. Like it's no longer moderation. It's now zero. So people are starting to question things. And I think now is the best time. And for the first time, you know, people are actually wondering, hmm, you know, what what is this stuff? And if that weren't true, then alcohol companies, big alcohol companies, yeah. like Heineken and Guinness, would not be coming out with their, you know, non-alcoholic version of their beverage. They know it. And I think as somebody like me who studies consumer psychology, like yep. these are the signs of the times, you know, like if these big multi-billion dollar companies are investing in something, it's because they know that it's going to be, you know, a commodity. And people are recognizing, you know what? A lot of people don't want to drink anymore yeah, or they want to drink less. And to me, that's just as fine. Like if you want to cut back, that's awesome. If you're a mindful drinker, that's awesome. You know, like it's all awesome. <laughs> like, you know, there's, there's, there's so many good reasons to have non-alcoholic options yeah. available Agreed. everywhere. And so I'm just really stoked to be part of this kind of new wave, right? Yeah. No, I think it's awesome. And I'm with you. Like, I don't care if you're sober curious. I don't care if you just want to cut down from like four drinks a week to three weeks. Like you do whatever you want. Like just because moderation didn't work for me, like that's me. That's my approach. I'm a unique person, like as are, as is everybody else in this earth, you know, like yes, what I exactly. wouldn't recommend is going from like five drinks to like 10 drinks. But like, if you want to you want to cut down like I support that no matter what and yeah I mean I have kind of like mixed feelings and and this is like totally off topic but mixed feelings about like these huge companies that are are making all of these alcoholic products like Heineken and Guinness then like profiting off of like these non-alcoholic beverages but at the same time I'm like better better this than nothing and like they have the supply chain like they can get this like product out to mass amounts of people and like at least give them the option and like just having more options and like seeing zero alcohol or like 0.5 or below product like next to like the alcoholic wine and beer like that's awesome and and just continuing to see that grow and even like my you know local oh, supermarket yeah. I, is when I wine really, I, like, I mean makes I'm me happy overwhelmed by the options but I'm 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 on the same boat as you I am questionable when it comes yeah. to you know giving money to alcohol companies because I can easily go to you know athletic brewing or partake in these brands that are only yeah you know non-alcoholic mm-hmm. but then there's something to be said it's kind of the selling out point right where it's like well mm-hmm you guys obviously don't really believe in that because you're an alcoholic. 
because you know you're saying it's profitable you want to be inclusive yada 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 you know it's a PR stunt but from a consumer psychologist standpoint Mm -hmm. this is a good thing because it legitimizes what's happening you know if all of the NA brands were just these smaller brands okay I think people would take it seriously but I mean when you see all of a sudden Guinness Heineken you know I think Bud Light has one too even now like they're coming out with these zero proof drinks like it makes it more real if that makes sense you know and I think people will take it more seriously yeah I I even have my drinking friends who now will have well they'll they'll keep non-alcoholic options in their fridge you know just for when they said oh when I'm you know having a little bit of a craving but I don't want to drink drink you know or I'm swapping kind of I'll have a drink and then I'll have a non-alcoholic back and forth whatever um but I think these big brand names yeah kind of saying oh this is a thing now it legitimizes what's being done, you know, because yeah. so many people are like, oh, well, if it's non-alcoholic, why would you want to drink it? Yeah. And I was, I, I thought the same thing too. I mean, I didn't, I didn't drink non-alcoholic yeah. options until I was like four <laughs> years sober. Um, and part of that was because I wasn't sure, you know, if it would be triggering or yeah. anything like that. But at the same time, from a marketing standpoint, it's just one of those things that, you know, those are the big influencers, right? And so if Heineken and Guinness are getting on board, there must be something going on, you know. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's just like how we as humans work. It's like if the popular kids aren't doing it, like it must not be cool. And now like the popular kids are catching on and and we've got like a, a real movement that's starting. So that's another kind of example of like eh like do I totally agree with what this is kind of like do I totally agree 100% with everything with AA or do I totally agree with Heineken's motivations behind this no but I can see benefits exactly. and like you know I'll exactly that. the more I think it gets people talking kind of and at do. this point that's what we want we want growth we want a platform we want an audience so you know, the fact that Heineken is having these commercials, you know, now that I've seen with their zero proof and stuff, like that's getting to an audience that may never even have considered mm-hmm. buying a non-alcoholic version. And then all of a sudden they see that it's available where they're out, you know, at a bar with friends yeah. and they're the DD and before you just got like a, you know, a Coke and now you have this option and then you realize, oh, it really tastes like the same thing. You know, it's this whole subculture that I think is really going to be making a, a difference for gray area drinkers in the next, you know, five, 10 years. And that's really, I think the audience that needs the most help because people like you and I, like we go one of two ways, like we either die <laughs> or we get better, you know, like, and it seems extreme, but that's really, I think when you're, when you're really, you know, when you're really into your alcoholism and you really are sick, like, you either die (laughs) most of the time or, you know, or you really fucking hit your rock bottom and you say, okay, I'm done. But it's all those people in the middle who don't have a rock bottom, who don't, you know, get hospitalized, who aren't having interventions. Like they're at risk. I think those functioning people need a lot more help because it's, I would rather have had the experiences that I had in such an extreme way and to be sober at 27 
for as long as I have been and to know I have my entire life ahead of me and that I've had consequences, but nothing as big as getting a divorce, losing custody of my children, not being able to have children, like losing my, you know, like long-term job, just all these things that I've heard so many stories about, especially in the rooms, you know, like we avoided that hopefully, you know, if we, if we can, if we decide to stay sober, but it's all those people who are in that gray area who I think are at so much higher risk for losing everything or just going through life completely miserable and not knowing that they don't have to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the thing is like with gray area drinkers, you know, like maybe you have a rough night, but then like, you know, you hear that your friend had a rough night too. And like that kind of validates like your actions or like just the general societal pressures to drink and you're like oh maybe it wasn't that bad and so like you're constantly like in this and I think I was in that for a while like I think you know I was high functioning until I wasn't like I I just it's like I was just running like being high functioning and then like all of a sudden I'm like halfway in my bottom getting hospitalized all the time it's like what is going on but you know, I eventually got there. But I think for people who you are just like kind of in this gray cycle of like, oh, I kind of made a little mistake. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, and you just go back and forth. It's like, yeah, you could just go your whole life, like either being miserable, or just like constantly like in this shitty shame cycle. And like, not even knowing that like, not drinking, like that's an option for you at any point. Like you don't have to get hospitalized. Like me, like you don't have to lose your house. Like you could just literally decide for no fucking reason other than that you don't want to drink anymore, like that you don't want to drink. And like, that's okay. (laughs) And I think even that is like the fact that like one of the things I've been thinking about is, oh, why don't I make a reel on Instagram of like all these things you can say to people when they ask you why you're not drinking? It's like, yeah, cool. That could be helpful. But also like, I shouldn't have to make that. Like we shouldn't have to make content like that. And I'm not complaining. I'll do it. I think it's helpful. I think even I have moments where, where I still like pull out some um, excuse maybe with like somebody that I'm not very close with, or that I think is very judgmental of of people who might have problems with drinking. Um, But it's just like, damn, like, I just wish that Like, and I think we're moving in that direction of, you know, it's, it's a choice and it's okay. It 100% is. And I think you're right. I hate that choice. Half the content that I have to post because it seems so, you know, uh, tedious or (laughs) self-explanatory, but it's not, you know, it is to us, I think, but it, it's not Mm -hmm. to the majority of the world. So, you know it's, it's okay. Like, you know, it still is like a shameful thing, like to the world, you know, oh, like it's a stigma. And I think I don't want to be part of that and, and saying, oh, well, like, you know, you should feel shameful for not wanting to tell everybody that you're a fucking raging drunk. You know, it's like, you know what, give yourself a break. If you want to tell everybody you're on antibiotics or you're pregnant (laughs) Well, we'll probably don't tell people you're pregnant because yeah. then you have to explain when you don't have a baby, um, you know, but like, 
oh, I'm not drinking an eye. I'm doing a challenge. Like, whatever. You know, like, don't, you, don't, you don't have to disclose because you don't owe anybody anything. And I really am a firm believer on the idea that, like, no is a complete sentence. But at the same time, yeah. like, do what you're comfortable with. I'm four and a half years sober. Yes. And there are times when I really just don't want to talk about it because a lot of people like to ask and people are nosy. And sometimes I just want to say, oh, I don't drink. Or, I, oh, I'm a personal yeah. trainer. Like, you know, people don't normally no. dive into it. Um, but I don't think people should feel ashamed if you're not ready, you know, to say why you're sober. And I don't think people should be, because I've seen trolls on, you know, posts like that where it's like, well, no one should, you know, it, you should be able to say, I don't drink, or you shouldn't have to make excuses. It's like, yes, that's true. But as a woman, I also should get paid equal wage, and I don't. So, you know, and I should be able to wear whatever I want without being like harassed. And that's <laughs> not, that's like not reality. So like, let's be real, you know, and change, we are, we are changing that. But until we are, mm-hmm. I don't want to shame our own people. Like, that's just not what we're here for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's a process. It's a total process. And Like, I just think it's really awesome that there are people out there and like people like you in this community that are just owning it and also being honest about like, and I've done this too, of just like, yeah, I post all these things on Instagram, but like I have shitty days or I have days where like, even I don't want to explain to somebody like why I'm not drinking or that like, I do feel kind of shameful of the fact today that, you know, like I can't just hang and like drink with everybody else like even the people who are kind of trying to like lead the way here like we all have doubts and like or you know none of nobody's process here is perfect but like we're all moving to a better place like we're all moving in a positive direction and like whether you're taking small steps big steps like 90 percent confident steps 70 percent confident steps like I that doesn't couldn't matter. agree more. Like, that's just so, Brett, I like to the end here. the podcast the same way every episode. And so I'm going to ask you, if you could give one piece of advice to yourself when you were sober curious, when you were like, you know, 11 months ago, what would that, what would that have been? Oh. advice I mean what I would say is like you don't have to be so sad or like you don't have to feel this way and I know that isn't advice but I think you know very similar to what we were talking about Mm -hmm. with like drinking or not drinking like it's a choice and like just try something new like alcohol isn't going anywhere like you can I can always go back to it. Like it is not going anywhere. And, you know, like you owe it to yourself and you deserve to, to see what this life is like. Well, I so, love that. I think so that's, thank you so much for being on the dry life podcast with us today, Brett. All right. Have a good rest of your night. Yeah. Bye. Thank you so much. It was great chatting with you.